So my name is Dave Miller. I'm here with John Bodley, Sam McDermott and Ollie Ryan. And we are just about to have a conversation around the letter of 1 Peter and some of the texts in there that might be a little bit trickier to understand at first glance. Okay, well, John, Sam, Ollie, thanks for being part of this conversation today. As you know, we're going through a series on 1 Peter at the moment called uh, When the Going Gets Tough. And we've been looking at five ways that Peter, who wrote this letter, seeks to strengthen the believers in Asia Minor in order to help them stand firm in the midst of what they're facing, which was sort of a degree of persecution that got increasingly hard as the time went on. And uh, we've looked at how he wrote to them about hope, how he looked, he wrote to them about purpose, about how he wrote to them about identity, and how he encouraged them to stay humble and holy. So that's the series we've been going through on Sundays. Um, but if anyone has been tracking with us and reading through the letter themselves, as we all know, having looked at it, um, and I hope people sort of have been, that'd be brilliant. Um, it's not all plain sailing as you read through it. Uh, so you don't have to read far before you kind of may well find yourself sort of tripping up, um, tripping over some things that aren't immediately clear or easy to read. In fact, there are some things that are quite obscure as you read through. And so um, the purpose of this conversation is really just to engage some of those trickier passages, uh, not in order to say, you know, this is the answer or um, anything like that, but really just sort of in broad brushstrokes suggest a few ways in which maybe Christian thinkers over the years have sought to understand and wrestle with some of these passages. And um, at Trent in the vineyard, we have uh, like a high view of scripture and uh, we believe it to be God's word. And so we don't want to just ignore or brush under the carpet bits that don't seem immediately clear. Or I guess even worse, brush under the carpet the bits we just don't like or we don't find comfortable. And so, you know, there's a famous story um, that, you know, gets, I think it's, I think it's genuine, um, but of uh, the president, Thomas Jefferson, who, um, who was the author of the Declaration of Independence, that he got the Bible and he cut out, chopped out all the bits that he didn't like. And so all the miracles when and, all the bits um, they didn't like came out and they, they called it the Jefferson Bible. And, uh, and I guess, you know, we could go through and we could do that. You know, we could chop out all the bits that we don't like and we'd end up with as many Bibles as there are people. And we'd end up with a God of our own making and of our own shape and our own likes and wants and none of the things that we're not sure about. And we just don't want to do that. We have a higher view of scripture than that. We want to listen to it all and we want to be changed by it. Um, and so um, this conversation is going to be briefer than it probably should be, um, but we're just going to spend a little bit of time commenting on some of the trickier passages that people have been reading through, reading along with us, um, they might have sort of bumped up against. And so, um, yeah, so let's jump in. Um, John, why don't you kick us off? Um, yeah. Yeah, great. So one of the passages... Um that we wanted to look at is like straight at the start of the letter um, where in the first couple of verses um, Peter uses some words um, that really capture people's attention the words like elect chosen and foreknowledge I'm just going to I'm just going to read first couple of verses yeah so it says Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect um, says that word scattered through the provinces of Pontus Galatia Cappadocia Asia Bithynia who <laughs> I guess who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge. Um, that word in Greek is like a bit like the word prognosis that we have, like for thinking ahead, seeing ahead of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit 
to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. And um, apparently, so those words elect in there, chosen, the word foreknowledge. Um, I think the, apparently the word chosen is not there in the original Greek, but it does crop up in 1 Peter. So like, for example, in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, you are a chosen people. And I think it's these words in particular, like chosen, foreknowledge, elect, have captured people's attention because on one hand, like, on Sunday, Amy was talking in a sermon about how it's, it's it's a lovely thing to hear these words of like, you have been chosen by God. Um, and we love that. Um, but it also begins to raise questions about how God's will and his plans, therefore, interact with our will and our free will. So like when we when we came to follow Jesus, who made that decision? Was that, were we chosen or did we choose to follow to follow Jesus? And so it's raised lots of debate through the centuries where people have asked the question do you know does god literally choose who does and does not become a christian or is that something where god creates uh, a possibility an invitation to everybody and then people choose whether to accept that invitation or not and so it's it, you could talk about it till the cows come home we're not going to resolve that one today but i think peter himself is uh, is like quite an interesting case study of this because he you know he writes this letter and he was in his experience literally chosen by jesus jesus came into his life and said follow me um and so i guess peter had a, a a choice to respond to that but then jesus also had foreknowledge of peter's life he's like you will become my rock way before peter was anything rock like yeah um, he, the, even the denial thing he does that. exactly the same thing like he said you will deny me and so he had evident foreknowledge of that scenario um and then peter went ahead so did peter choose to do that did peter choose to become the rock or did jesus choose that and so you know, you can debate about it till the cows come home. And I guess it has implications for our own life. And so um, different Christians have different views about this, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, I think you go around different churches and different denominations and you'll find Christians everywhere will talk about, you know, the the notion of God being in control, God being sovereign. Um, and I think uh, Spurgeon, um, the preacher Spurgeon said... Uh, the sovereignty of God is a soft pillow for weary heads. And I think, you know, we'd be like, oh, yeah, we, we love that. But I think people have different understandings of how that sovereignty works and how it interacts with our agency and to what extent who chooses what. Um, as I say, it's a hugely complex topic. And so um, two significant sort of perspectives, though, through the years that, that have sort of characterized what many people in the church believe are um, Calvinism and Arminianism, um, which, um, you know, are... <laughs> Basically, based on teachings from a guy called Calvin and a guy called Arminius, 16th century theologians. Um, and so uh, on the Calvin side, Calvin would strongly emphasize God's sovereignty and his direct influence on events in our lives and actions. You know, the idea that he literally ordains, destines things to happen, and we will then inevitably or irresistibly choose it. Um, so <clears throat> I think uh, like a way that I always remember it is a joke that I heard about the Calvinists where it's like, what did the Calvinist say when he fell down the stairs? I'm glad I got that over with. Okay. <laughs> but um, it might be a slight caricature of the position, but it kind of makes the point. Whereas Arminianism, um, on the other sort of end of the spectrum, emphasizes the reality of human free will and choices and more suggests that God doesn't control um, or, or sort of cause and plan our voluntary choices. He doesn't control every specific detail, but he's like responding in real time to human actions in a way that ultimately leads towards his goals. So the way I visualize this one is maybe God's a bit more like a sat-nav. 
where he's like, he's got the destination, he's got the plan, he's got the route, and we're free to go off route. And when we do, he'll be like, turn around when possible, or he'll be like, go back the other way. And ultimately, we can choose to go to just completely ignore the directions and go a different way if we choose to. Um, but God has this overall overall direction. So as a result of these two positions, Calvinists would tend to towards the, tend towards the conclusion that Jesus died to save the elect um, and that he chooses who will be saved and who won't be, whereas Arminian view would hold that the chosen or the elect, as they're described here, are those who willingly respond to God's offer of salvation. And they're kind of like two big positions, but obviously there are a whole spectrum of positions in between and other sort of views and concepts. But you'll find those two words... Um, Calvinist, Arminian, crop up in this yeah. debate along with the word predestination all the time. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and sometimes you hear um, s- uh, slight um, additions. That, so you have like hard Calvinists or yes. soft Calvinists, or so you're right. It's like this continuum, isn't it, where you've got these kind of extremely different things, and then like, most people sort of find their feet somewhere in the middle, somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I think that's how it is. And John, where where would the vineyard sit with this kind of thing? Yes. <laughs> Well, like, yeah, it's helpful perhaps to sort of contextualize it a little bit in terms of like some, you know, there's voices that probably most of us will have heard of. People like John Piper um, or Tim Keller um, would tend towards Calvinist um, perspective, probably, or something, some form of Calvinist perspective and um, denominations like Reformed churches will go that way. And then you perhaps the Methodist church might be more typically characterized as having an Arminian perspective. And voices like John Wesley and C.S. Lewis, people will probably say, oh, yeah, they probably fit into that camp. But what you'll find is that the vineyard is amongst um, a bunch of churches like the Church of England, many Pentecostal churches, where you'll often find a range of views um, within the church. And they may not necessarily have a sort of a strong view at one end of the scale with this. And you probably like we could probably if we had time, go around this table and discover that we probably as individuals will probably have slightly different um, takes uh, takes on this because it's something where I think you know I'm I'm happy to concede that uh, um, this is you know an area where Christians with far greater biblical awareness mm. and you know over centuries of can argue convincingly from Scripture mm. on each side and at the end of the day we might have a personal preference about like oh that one resonates with me more but the real thing is like well what does the Bible actually say about this and the truth is I think you can you can argue either way with this. Um, but I think in the vineyard, we would probably adopt and embrace a range of views, seeing the benefit in all of them. You know, like Calvinism is a perspective that really, you know, just encourages us to abandon and trust the Lord and just, you know, hand things over to him and his sovereignty. Um, Arminianism is a view that exhorts us to kind of like pray and do stuff and, you know, as though our decisions make matter. And so there's helpful things to be taken from both. And I think that's what we try and do with a lot of things in the vineyard, isn't it? So that's probably where we'd end up um and ultimately i think it's one that it it, it maybe god doesn't intend for us to resolve this because there's a mystery to it that really spurs us back into his words to have conversations like this to fish Mm. the bible out and go well what does it mean and like just for example i know we need to move on but uh like that word chosen um is really interesting because if you read on through one peter for example um in chapter 120 jesus is described as chosen Yes, so it says uh, Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. And it continues to say he's the chosen and precious cornerstone. So you read that and you begin to think, well, what does Peter really mean when he uses the word chosen? And it sort of spurs you in to try and figure out more um, and wrestle with some of these things that aren't necessarily explicitly clear. So, yeah, yeah, that's great. I remember um, 
I think it gets said quite, you know, in lots of different contexts, but um, that thing about, you know, pray, so pray like a Calvinist, like as if everything depends on God and live like an Arminianist if everything depends yeah, on you. Yeah. And probably, um, you know, and I, that doesn't helpfully resolve anything. No. Because, no. And that won't be, you know, a lot of people would disagree with, with that as a, you can't just land there. But um, but ultimately, I think often we we do actually do that in, in the practice of yeah. actual life, don't we? We pray. And we ask God to intervene in people's lives, like draw that person to faith, God. And we're asking them to like do something in their life to sort of intervene, do something. Yeah. And then we live and we plan and we like, how can we, you know, how can we structure Sunday so that it's like as clear as possible for the, it would do everything we can to make it as clear as possible for the person coming in. Yeah. So it's funny, but like in, when it sort of touches our actual lives, we often function in both. The the thing about, you know, God's sovereignty being a, a soft pillow for weary heads I think I often think like I go to bed like a Calvinist where I'm like oh yeah I'm just handle that to you Lord and then in the morning I wake up and I'm like Lord would you use me like with the other side yeah. of like yeah yeah that's great that's great and and so again like it's the broad brushstrokes of like what how what is the conversation how have Christians thought about these things over the years and so that's really helpful and it's not necessarily we can't you know we're not in a position to say this is the answer this is what you have to b- think but it's just to say this is how the conversation happens around passages like this so sam if we move on to you it's okay it's another you had a tricky one um it's uh, one peter three so do you want to sort of talk us through a little bit how you've sort of engaged with that and thought about it sure so um i want to talk about um noah making a cameo appearance in in the letter um so we're in uh, chapter three and peter is talking about enc- encouraging his readers to persevere even when they're suffering persecution and he at the end of that chapter focuses in on the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Uh, And at the end of the letter, there's this wonderful phrase that Christ suffered once for sins. And what he's talking about there is that Christ Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice. And unlike the the, uh, Old Testament, we don't need to keep doing these like ritual things in the temple. Um, But sandwiched in the middle of this beautiful passage, there's this very random reference uh, to uh, to Noah and imprisoned spirits. It says, um, after being made alive, alive, he, that's Jesus, went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. There's like a ton of things in there. Um, and actually Martin Luther, when I was reading about this, I found this quote from Martin Luther. He said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. <laughs> Even Martin Luther struggled with this one, and, and it's fair because it raises a whole bunch of questions like, who are these spirits and why are they in prison? What was the proclamation? And when exactly does this take place? Because we've got the resurrection, and then he goes back, and then we're talking about Noah. So what on earth is going on here? And it, it- it's quite an unexpected move, isn't it? Because it doesn't follow with like the rest of the. You're not. You're not like. Oh, and now you know. I've been reading the rest of you know chapter two, and sure. and I'm ready for Noah now. It's like where did that come it from? It comes totally out of the blue, and yeah. you're kind of in this passage of like, yes, the resurrection and the ascension. It's amazing. Hang on, who? Yeah, yeah. Noah, what's he? What's he doing in here? And um, when I when I was reading, I managed to find eighteen different explanations to this um to this funny little pair of verses and I'm not going to go through all of them and um, but I think we can narrow them down to three so 
Um, we've got one explanation that says somewhere between his death and resurrection, Jesus descends into hell um, and and preached to everyone who died in the days of in the flood and explained to them, guys, this is what the gospel is. I'm giving you a second chance. Do you wanna do you wanna join in? So that's the first one. The second one is that the spirits that uh, Peter is talking about are actual fallen angels who have disobeyed God. Um, and Jesus goes down to hell and he says, look, guys, I've done it. I've defeated death. I've won. I've got the victory. You guys are doomed. So you just kind of get on with it. Um, and then the final explanation is actually uh, St. Augustine's interpretation that Peter is looking back to the flood uh, as a sort of prototype or example sacrifice of God's judgment and an opportunity to be saved, where Jesus actually spoke through Noah as a message of salvation and that um, some people uh, got on board. There was eight who got on the ark and the rest of the people didn't hear Jesus's message preached through Noah um, and were disobedient. It's co- confusing, isn't it? Kind of you get into quite a time travelly situation mm-hmm. with this one. Um, but most of the commentators that I read land sort of somewhere in the realms of that last one. Okay. And and so is that to say um, it's a bit like the, uh, the some of the New Testament writers will make use of like uh, the Exodus or, you know, where Israel come out, Israel come out of Egypt and they'll use that as like a, oh, this is a bit of a sort of a picture that happened prior to that has a sort of advanced kind of almost prophetic yeah. sort of thing to it that is sort of giving us a, a picture of like what Jesus is going to do, that sort of thing. That kind of thing, yeah. So there's kind of two ways of understanding this. One is that um, it's this picture and Peter is using these stories that people would be familiar with mm. to talk about what Jesus did. The other one, you can't, it, it's quite tricky because you can get into sort of knots around the Trinity on this one, but the simplest way I've heard it explained is that... Um, it was Noah was preaching a message of God through the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So there's this sort of idea of um, this message is coming, God's message is coming. Jesus hasn't um, been uh, crucified and resurrected yet, but the Holy Spirit was at work in that in that situation. So there's obviously this slightly random bit about imprisoned spirit, spirits. Right, yeah. Uh, do we know who they are? <laughs> Got any, any any thoughts? Come on, Sam. That bit. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's there's tons again. It, there's 18 different explanations for this um, right. for this sto- this little passage, um, but I think one of the the kind of the most most uh, orthodox understandings of this was that actually what he's talking about is people who have died, um, so uh, people who have uh, heard God's message, didn't hear it, and have since died um, and we kind of come to that conclusion because of the word that Peter uses for disobedience there is actually the disobedience of unbelief not a rebellion so if it was going to be spirits who rebelled it's he's kind of using the wrong the wrong word um, and secondly Peter's talking about the ark story here and so the ark story wasn't about a spiritual rebellion it was actually about humans disobeying God um, and God's judgment coming because of sin so that feels like the most comfortable although there are lots um of of um churches who lean more into the kind of charismatic tradition that would talk about spirits who have rebelled in this thing of jesus um having the victory over the spiritual world which we actually would believe as well wow that's a lot there's a lot in there uh, any other things to say about that sam no well i think i think the um 
whichever way you land on this interpretation, um, you've got this beautiful phrase that I mentioned at the beginning, that mm. Christ died once for all. And as Peter kind of harks back to this, um, the, the flood story, whether you think of it as a, he's using it as a metaphor or whether he's talking literally about Jesus speaking through Noah, through the Holy Spirit, um, what's really interesting about the flood story is God did save eight people, but only temporarily because they died. And what, he's say, what I think he's saying here is, even if you are suffering for your faith so greatly that you might be murdered for it, Jesus's um, saving of us, his salvation is once for all. We can have faith in it no matter what's happening. And so I think okay. it's a confusing passage, but when you land in mm. that uh, in that final little section, I think it's really beautiful and uplifting for people, especially if you're in suffering. Yeah, I think that's super, super helpful. Because, um, and I've thought that as I've read through uh, these different passages, that I think the the purpose question is really like really helpful. Yeah. That if Peter's writing in order to strengthen these believers who are in a difficult situation. And so everything is to that end. It's like, that's the reason he's writing. Yeah. So you have to, so he's saying this thing, which is not super easy to get our heads around. Um, and, you know, Christians over the years haven't found it that he's, but we know that whatever he's trying to do, he, the purpose in, in mm. doing this, in bringing this up is to strengthen them. And they might, may perhaps high likelihood is that they, the people who were receiving this letter would have sort of got the gist of what Peter was saying. And we're just like, because we're 2,000 years on, it's like right. hard for us to get back there. And so they would have been like, oh, you know, if they would have read this and maybe just been like, one, Peter, so helpful. And we're like, <laughs> what? 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 <laughs> yes. But um, I think the purpose thing is is really, really helpful. So thanks, Sam. Thanks so much. Um, Ollie, how about you? Yeah, so um, I've got a couple of verses uh, in chapter four. And um, like we talked about, Peter's obviously... Uh, Ryan to these Christians who are suffering and towards the end of his letter he's, he's trying to give them like a little bit of perspective and in verse 7 um, he just says this he says the end of all things is near and then he says therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray but um, some people have read this verse and sometimes wondered like was Peter mistaken like did he think that Jesus was like imminently about to come back and, um, and actually telling Christians that and then he got it wrong and um, it's a good question uh, Fortunately, all of the commentaries I've, I've read said it doesn't seem to be that that's what Peter was doing. <laughs> Obviously, uh, if you've read the Gospels, you know that Peter probably several times heard Jesus say, like, no one is going to know when I'm going to come back. Like, no one is going to understand that. And um, so that probably wasn't the case. And also the word end that we've got in our Bibles here uh, is generally is the same word as goal. So it's almost like Peter is saying a little bit like the whole big story of like God's redemption is like coming towards its final goal. Um, it's coming towards an end to its fulfillment. Because I guess if you think of the whole story of the Bible from like uh, creation, fall, Abraham, Exodus, Israelites, um, and then eventually to Jesus, his death, the resurrection, um, and then the Holy Spirit. If you think of all of that stuff has come, he's kind of saying like the we're getting towards the end of the story. We're getting towards the the final goal. And, um, and so I think when you think of it a little bit like that um, and from what different commentaries I was reading were saying, it's like Peter's saying, he's not saying the end is literally like tomorrow or is coming soon, but he's like, we're, we're now in like the final act of the play a little bit, like we've, we've heard that talked about before. Um, and, and he's kind of painting the suffering of these Christians in light of that. And he's kind of saying like, guys, we're nearly there. Like, hold on. Um, like, keep going. And the end is in sight. And um, yeah, I think that's what it seems like maybe he was doing. That's great. That's really helpful. There's, um, 
what about the bit it's towards the end of the chapter in verses 17 um to 19 about judgment it seems um it's just a bit trickier to to read yeah so again uh towards the end of the chapter it says this in verse 17 so it says for it's time for judgment to begin with god's household and if it begins with us what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God and then it continues to go on. And there's a few little, yes, yeah, few bits about judgment. That sort of language isn't, maybe it's not language we we, we talk about, you know, a, a huge amount of the time and it's not always language that's the most comfortable, is it? So how do you, how have you? F- yeah, it is, it's, it's um, Peter definitely uses language different to what we would probably use on a Sunday. I think that's fair to say. And um, again, like we were talking about a minute ago, Everything Peter's doing in this letter, he's trying to frame it in light of what the Christians he's writing to are going through. And in this context, he's he's framing their suffering in relation to God's judgment, basically. Okay. And uh, a few of the different things that I've read point out that Peter's understanding of judgment was probably quite different to how we would typically understand judgment. So uh, Peter, because he's talking about how the judgment is going to begin with God's household, with these people that he's writing to. So he can't be saying that these Christians who are like standing firm in the midst of persecution are somehow going to be condemned or something like that. That that wouldn't make sense. Um, and also, uh, Peter, he was he was obviously a Jew and would have had quite like a Hebrew kind of Old Testament understanding of lots of these words. And the Hebrew word apparently that was likely referenced here uh, does sometimes in the Old Testament get translated as judgment, but often gets translated as justice. Okay. And so when we hear the word judgment, I don't know about you, I often think of like a, a negative kind of judgment giving like passed down in a court or something like that. Yeah, this is going to be like a negative outcome yes, in some way. exactly. Yeah. And and ne- judgment com- comes with this baggage, doesn't it? It's generally quite yeah. a negative baggage. Whereas apparently uh, Peter likely would have thought of it um, with a far broader understanding of that. So um, it could involve like good judgments as well, like positive judgments, uh, good governance, giving people their rights, like not tolerating oppression, restoring someone to a position who's lost it. Like loads of things like that would come under the banner of judgment. And so probably our modern word of justice is a little bit of a closer understanding to what Peter was probably talking about. So, so sorry. So the judgment would be, it, there might be some sort of penalty in it, but it's also reward as well. Yeah, both ends. Well, okay, a, yeah. a judge essentially there might be, there might be negative judgments that get passed, but they're also almost it's more like a good government. There are mm. there are good things that they do, and there might be things they that they have to stop. Wow, um, we just don't hear it in that way. Like that's not the the thing that comes to mind, is it? When you hear that that. Word, yeah, and, and that also makes more sense when you think of who Pete is writing to, because he's ultimately saying against these suffering Christians, like God is going to bring His justice, and um, and so for these people living under persecution, in some ways, Peter's saying like what you're going through is part of that, and you are suffering right now, um, but like hold on for a bit longer because it, like it's all going to be worth it. So he he's basically saying, and it's kind of stark when you read it. He's basically saying the suffering you're going through now is basically the worst it's going to get for you. Like it is hard. But like, look ahead, because when God ultimately brings his justice, um, your fate is, is going to be very different to those who don't know Jesus. And uh, it is, like you said, slightly uncomfortable language when you read it for uh, for modern reading. But you can imagine if, if Peter's writing to people who are being severely persecuted for their faith, uh, they would probably rightly be asking questions like, is this worth it? Like the suffering that I'm going through, is it really worth it? That's, that's interesting because in, um, in chapter one, he talks to them about hope. Like, and we did that in the first week of the series that one of the things he says, talks about is hope and, and that hope is like multifaceted, but one of the big elements of it is this future hope that yeah. all of this, um, that the hope of heaven and the hope of like the end of suffering and, and pain and sadness and 
that that's all like a, you know guaranteed and ahead of them and so it's interesting it sounds like the language of judgment actually has a sort of a hope element to it kind of ties makes sense of what he's saying in chapter one there as well yeah 100 percent. and so i guess when they're asking these questions of like should i just give up like what's the point of going on peter is is saying that actually their suffering isn't pointless mm. um like god is using it to refine them there's a language in there of like a like a refining fire um but he's also basically saying your, your suffering is temporary compared to the eternal <laughs> like salvation you're going to have um, and he is obviously comparing that to people who don't know Jesus, which is where sometimes we read that and we're like, oh, this feels like a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but in some ways it reminds me of when we hear Jesus talk about like the sheep and the goats or like the narrow way and the, and the wise way. Um, Jesus obviously uses slightly more poetic language where Peter is just like, ultimately the suffering you're going through now won't be forever. Um, and there will be a, like a difference between those of you who now are suffering for Jesus and those who aren't. Um, and really... When I was thinking about it, I was like, this is this is kind of a consistent theme all throughout the New Testament of like the present challenge and cost of following Jesus and the future cost of not doing so. And Peter, which is kind of all through the letter, he's just a bit more upfront about the reality of that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I keep, I, actually, I keep thinking about the fact that all the time he, you know, he was literally there when Jesus, those bits towards the end of Matthew, towards the end of the Gospels where... Jesus says, "Like this is how it's going to pan out. There'll be, you know, you'll 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 suffer. There'll be persecution. There'll be things that you'll go through, but you know, but beyond that, my kingdom will mm. will advance." And he'd heard all that firsthand from Jesus. He'd seen Jesus die. He'd seen Jesus resurrected mm-hmm. and ascended. And so it's kind of like that's his that's his context for him to say all this stuff, isn't it? So it's sort of like he's a bit snappier with it, but yeah, he's he'd actually seen Jesus demonstrate that, that he can deliver on that so yeah it's cool it's amazing thanks man that's really helpful um so we just um just briefly touch on one final bit that comes up he's gonna um it'll be talked about a little bit on a sunday so we're not gonna spend ages on it either but um it's you can't really read through the letter and um and not be confronted by some of the sections at the end of chapter uh, two and running into chapter three uh, where it talks about slaves and masters, and then it talks about husbands and wives. And um, it's a good question: How are we to understand these passages today? We live in a very di- in in our culture is very very different, um, uh, in a you know in a good way. And hopefully, you know, we'll continue to improve because it's not you know it, things are not perfect, are they? But um, but things are very different to how they were back then, um, and. Um, so, so how how are we to engage with these passages around the slaves obey your masters and then talks about husbands and wives? What do we do with these passages? And uh, one way to to see them, one way people do have seen them in the past is that Peter in this is like affirming slavery, and he's affirming gender inequality. And um, you know, certainly these sorts of passages and a few others were appealed to at times to justify slavery. Like this is fine because in one Peter it says da 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 da, you know. And, um, you know, so historically some people would have used appeal to these passages to justify that what we would now see as like horrific in, you know, horrific situations and, um, and injustice. Um, but others would say that, you know, Peter doesn't, um, he isn't at all affirming these things. He's not affirming these institutions. Um, but actually he's he's just sort of acknowledging or accommodating the reality of the situation it's kind of like he's quite pragmatic in his approach so you know he sort of says like you know given given the situation that we're in you know 
live like this. Um, and, you know, that's why he's, he talks about in, in the, the letter that he wants to help them in their present sufferings, mm. in their present trials. And um, and I th- there's a, so yeah, people m- would argue that actually he's, he's quite just pragmatic about this is the situation. Mm. And what I want to do is help you be firm, stand yeah. firm, um, stay faithful to Jesus in this situation. Um, and actually they might, others would argue that actually more than that, he actually nudges everything um, towards a greater equality. Um, the husband and wife, you know, are co-heirs, he says, of God's, of the promise of God. Um, there are conditions on how husbands are, were to treat their wives. Um, and that was pretty radical for the day. Like that was totally different from anywhere else. Um, and so those who would read in this way would say, you know, these things that we read here aren't normal. They're not meant to be normative for us today in the same in that way it's not saying this institution this way this is this needs to be normative for you um in fact we are living and benefiting from the trajectory that peter and others like paul and jesus sort of set in motion that we're living sort of further along that curve that um that they set this in motion i think john start um talking about some of the passages about slavery and paul he says paul lit the fuse that would eventually sort of blow up the institution of slavery and mm. um so you have this kind of sense of it being nudged along others so, so, so sort of like so just to so hear it you're right so what you're sort of saying is it's kind of like it's less it's less advocating in you know, a particular circumstance but more saying like if this is your circumstance this is how to be like jesus in the midst of that um which bearing in mind like yeah we've been talking about like, the persecution thing it kind of makes sense because in one period he's sort of saying like as you are persecuted this is how to be like jesus yeah yeah um yeah so therefore it's not it's not saying being persecuted is great or good it's just saying how yeah yeah and also um because even the idea of accommodating can be a little bit like is that a good th- a good yeah. thing you know especially in our context now where we're like you should speak up and you should yeah but i think that there's a i think you mentioned this actually um the other week but there's a there's you, you always have to think about the similar, the dissimilarity and the similarity between our context and their context, because there's two thousand years, right? Yeah. There's similar things and dissimilar things. And one of the the massive dissimilarities is is that they really had no recourse, nothing to call upon, no legal system that they could go. Oh, slave! You know, I just want to appeal against the the wrongness of slavery. You know, yeah. human rights. My human rights are being abused, and. I've got a court that I can go to and I can appeal against, you know, I'm going to go to the emperor and appeal against my slavery. That just wasn't, they had no recourse for that. Like it was so embedded in the society. It's like, this is just, just part of the, the way their world worked. Yeah. And same for gender rights. And same, for, yeah, it's yeah. just like they had no, there's no, where would they go? And so I think the advice that might be given in a scenario where there is simply no recourse, there's nothing that you can appeal to um to sort of move justice for like what what other things do you have available to you You have to give advice that's like okay in that scenario i would recommend you know, yeah, yeah. live this way live this way and for the most part the interesting thing is he basically kind of says just live out what jesus says so with the slaves and master he, 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 if you t- if you look at jesus words about love your enemies pray for those who persecute you and then you compare them to what peter's suggesting it's like it's pretty close like it's pretty close it's not that peter's saying this is a you know this this situation um is everything you know that the kingdom of god should look like in any mean by any means i just you know um i don't think that is in any way what he's saying i think he's just working and acknowledging well, this is just how things are and so what what's it look like to live faithfully to jesus 
in the midst of that sort of situation. Um, there are others <clears throat> who would say that whilst Peter is affirming, um, uh, he's not affirming that slavery or uh, inequality and normative, the question, <clears throat> sorry, when it comes to husbands and wives um, is an interesting one. And, and there are those who would say that cannot just be sort of relegated <clears throat> to the result of um, just a different context, like that there's 2,000 years and the context is different. There's, um, you know, there's a lot of people who would argue, I don't think that's quite quite the same. It's not quite the, the case. Um, and they would say, you know, Peter is along, along with other New Testament passages, he's tapping into not just something that was contextual there and then, but something that is kind of essential, an essential thing to the structure of uh, marriage and gender. And so they would say, and so in some Paul's letters, they would say he appeals to creation, not, and, you know, and in that way, he sort of um, pushes way beyond just like the, the context of the immediate. And so where's the previous view um, might be called like more egalitarian, where you'd say that was to do with the context then. And now, you know, um, there is no role distinction. There's no inequality. Like it's all, um, it's all, uh, it's it's fair. It's a level playing field for everyone. Um, that would be called like an egalitarian view of sort of um, gender relationships. Uh, and but so this other one would, would often be called like a complementarian view. Um, and they would argue that that you know there is there is total total equality of value. Um, but there is difference in roles between husbands and wives or men and women. And, um, and they would say things like, you know, the image of the afternoon, like the image of a dance. Um, you know, neither, neither of the couple in the dance have more value than the other. There is a quality of value. Um, but the dance works best when someone takes the lead steps where, you know, the steps that you need to take. And, um, and, you know, there's so many different nuances within it because, as with all the other views, there's probably like everyone has like a slight little, slight little, I changed this bit a little bit, you know. Um, but that is kind of the lay of the land where people rest with these texts. You sort of, you know, you have this kind of historic, you know, um, not, historic isn't really a fair way of putting it, but this um, kind of broadly rejected idea that it's all, nor it's all normative, it's all fine, you know, it's justify slavery. There's not very many people who, who would argue that anymore. Um, and I think you can't really argue that justifiably from the new testament um but these two views around um complementarian and egalitarian as views of like gender roles and men and women they are quite like two fairly broad camps that different um churches uh fit in that's really helpful dave um as as we look at the passage there's a word that jumps out for me anyway that word weaker um, and i know there's lots of different ways of understanding that so what how would you unpack yeah, the woman being the weaker vessel. Yeah, that is the line that stands out. Um, well, uh, it, it's again, it's if within these different camps, like people will engage with that in a different way. So for the complementarian, uh, they're more likely, and again, it's a, kind of you have to stress the. It's hard to sort of summarize a position that like that there would be so many nuances in, but they would be more likely to see that line as the woman being the weaker vessel as as related to design and innate sort of physical strength or what you know that sort of stuff that talk, that speaks to god having created women in this way and men in that way and that there is complementarity when those two things come together 
And so they would probably see it more in terms of design. Um, but an egalitarian might argue and see it more in terms of um, the cultural limitations that were that were sort of forced upon women in that situation. So they had no access to education. Um, they were in a patriarchal society, you know, um, they couldn't, they, and so those things would necessarily sort of create limitations upon them. And so it's a reflection of that. So, um, and, um, and there'll be other views as well. It's like, there'll be, you know, 101, but, um, that's kind of, I guess, one of the ways that depending on, uh, where you sort of sit or, or stand off or sort of feel like represents your, your sense of the scriptures, you would probably begin to engage with that passage. Um, in a different in different way depending on those things um but it is it is there's, there's so many different like nuances in it but um the, the lay of the land broadly is this egalitarian on the one hand and complementarian on the other um, in the vineyard we we affirm women in leadership um in all levels of leadership because some churches would have limitations on they could lead this but not that and in the vineyard we affirm women in leadership in all in all areas of ministry and so and that would put us sort of in an egalitarian position as as um related to that um but i suspect within the vineyard um and with regards to the conversation around marriage and husbands and wives roles in marriage i i suspect that there would just be a, a breadth of opinion um with within the vineyards around the world as to sort of what that means or what that should look like and um and around the complementarity of two genders, you know, um, I think that would have a breadth of view in the vineyard as well. Um, yeah. And I suppose, like, in this context, going back to this letter, regardless of why women were in a weaker position or weaker in that context and in that time, you know, you could you could debate about that, but the exhortation would be the same either way upon men to then use mm. the strength and the power and the position that they had mm. to lift women women up and protect them and so on or and treat them yeah. as Jesus would yeah regardless yeah yeah and I think some of the um, in Ephesians 5 which is often the passage that gets paired with this passage it's interesting because Paul starts the whole thing with the language submit to one another out of reverence for us submit to one another and so the whole thing whatever is then said underneath that title heading it can't mean don't submit to one another. And the radical, radical thing, and I think we have to keep this in mind again and again and again, is that the thing that would have shocked them back then isn't the things that were said about women, which is the thing that maybe shocks us. The thing that would have shocked them then is that Paul and Peter in his letter have the audacity to suggest that the, the men or the husbands, that there is any limitation or any, any limitation on their freedom to treat their wives however they want to. And so the shocking thing for them, the thing that would have sort of, they would have caught their, you know, breath in there. They would have been like, what, what do you mean? How dare you say, you know? And same with the way slaves are talked about. And same with the way slaves, I mean, yeah, un unbelievable. And so, yeah, I think that's a fascinating, um, a fascinating thing. And I think that's, again, one of those things where we have to, we do have to pay attention uh, to the similarity and dissimilarity between our context and their context. You know, we often... I think it's Gordon Fee in his book. He says, you know, you, you always start with the question, what did it mean um, to them there and then? You know, what did it mean there and then to them? Before you ask the question, what does it mean here and now to us? Because that's a different, you know, that's a different thing. So, yeah. And Dave, what what do you make of it personally? What, what do you think? Uh, well, <laughs> it's, 
it's it's not an easy um it's not easy when you engage with the Bible in these things. There are certain things that do feel easy, like where Paul says, you know, can you bring my cloak with you to someone? <laughs> you know, you're like, it's clearly he doesn't mean, you know, I can't, I'm not supposed to get up now and go and find a cloak and take it to Paul somewhere, you know. Mm. Um, so there's some things that are clear and then there's some things where it feels like, oh, this is like hard to quite know what to do with. Um, and, uh, but personally, I think um, the thing that's striking to me in all of it is that the whole thing... Um, is framed within quite a specific thing. It's, it's Christian women married to a non-Christian man, right? Which is quite interesting. That it's kind of quite specifically that, and which, like, as a thing, was almost unthinkable in the ancient world because the husband was the person who sort of it was the husband who said, "These are our gods. These are our household gods. These are the ones that we're." And so, for there to be disparity there is like su- surprising and shocking, anyway. Um, but the 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 point that he's the, the 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 thing that Peter's doing in bringing this stuff up, he's talking to him how 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 best to sort of evangelistically reach your husband, and so um, that is to say, the purpose and the focus of the passage or in the passage is firstly missional, and I think it's easy to miss that, like when you get into the into the, the the detail of like, oh, is it saying this? Is it meaning this? It's the 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 the, the, the thing front and center really is that this is missional. And, you know, Paul elsewhere in, in his letter, uh, he writes in Corinthians, he says this, um, and I just wrote it down because I think it's helpful. He says, you know, though I'm free, I made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became a Jew. To those under the law as one under the law. To those not under the law as one not under the law. So as to win those not under the law. To the weak, I became weak. And then I love this. He says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some and all this for the sake of the gospel so I think it's worth keeping the missional urgency in view whatever the conclusion like you come to Uh, I'm not sure that this passage is primarily about household instruction as much as it is what it is for the sake of the world for the sake of mission for the sake of evangelism and I think it's helpful just to keep that in mind in whatever conversations we're having about it. Amazing. Thanks, Dave. And it's um it's amazing it when we look at all of these different passages that uh there's so much more going on than maybe when we're just reading our Bibles, we initially read something and think we get it, but actually when you dig beneath the surface, there's there's loads of different stuff, some really helpful stuff, but also like I guess even around this table we probably wouldn't agree on everything. And um so I think it's helpful sometimes for things to realise that not everything lands in a particular place and we we get to disagree and we get to have a bit of room to figure out what we think it might be saying. Um, might be good to finish by prayer, so I pray. Yeah, Lord, we 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 thank you for your word and for um, anyone that might be listening to this, watching this, uh, people at home with small groups, whatever that might be. We we ultimately want to know you more and want to love you more and love others more. So, would you help us as we uh, read these passages? We try and understand them. To, to put you at the centre of all of this, Jesus, and to, to know you more deeply. Amen. Oh,